Shintai here. I'm going to be talking about the Universal Century timeline for the Gundam series. If you don't know what that is, it's basically the main timeline of the Gundam series. Stuff like Gundam Wing and G Gundam are alternate universe Gundams, and I'm not going to be talking about them. I'm going to start with the original Mobile Suit Gundam all the way up to Char's Counterattack. There are other Gundams in the Universal Century timeline, but I think that's a good stopping point. I hope you guys enjoy the first part of my retrospective where I give an in-depth analysis of the original Mobile Suit Gundam along with its three movie remakes. There's no better way to start a retrospective of Gundam than to talk about the original Mobile Suit Gundam. Within the Universal Century timeline, the original Mobile Suit Gundam takes place during UC 0079. This also means that Mobile Suit Gundam takes place during the One Year War. The One Year War was a war between the Earth Federation and the Principality of Xeon. Now before getting too deep into the story, first let's talk a bit about the art and animation. The animation in Mobile Suit Gundam is very old. This did come out in the year 1979, so remember to keep your expectations in perspective. However, I do have to note that the animation does look jerky. The art is very simple and sometimes inconsistent. And there are some occasional coloring mistakes, if you have an eye for that sort of thing. At the same time though, despite these flaws, I believe that the art style itself is so charming that it becomes much easier to forgive these flaws, and it's still appealing uh, show to look at. Again, if you set your expectations accordingly. Also, I have to mention that since the art style is, again, very old, that if you watch the series instead of the movies, the disco references and clothing and mech designs can be a bit jarring and unsightly. Alright, getting back to the topic at hand. Unlike most mecha anime that came before Gundam, such as Gigantor, Gundam took itself much more seriously and was more about putting mechs in a realistic situation and was the first to do so. Because of this, the plot isn't simply Earth Federation good, Zeon bad. It's actually not as clear-cut as that. The war is being fought not because one side is good or one side is evil, but because of ideological differences. In fact, even though the story takes place within the eyes of Amuro Ray, an Earth Federation soldier, you might find yourself looking at the Earth Federation and think they're pretty douchey too. This is because neither side is completely good or bad. Both sides have blood on their hands. But people fight for what they believe in. These people truly believe that their way of government is superior to their enemies. 
In that sense, you could be easily rooting for one side or the other, depending on where your sympathies lie. Because of this, I believe that the story is the best part of Gundam. There are a lot of complicated dynamics at play. Here, this is because there are two opposing forces with internal conflicts residing in both. Many betrayals and backstabbings occur and really show a war is really like both on and off the battlefield. So how does Amuro, our series protagonist, fit into all this? You know, Amuro is the son of an Earth Federation scientist who constructed the RX-78-2, or more commonly known as the Gundam. This Gundam was created as a countermeasure against Zeon's Zaku units. Until the Gundam, the Earth Federation had no mobile suits and was at a disadvantage against Zeon. This gave birth to the Gundam. Zeon, however, found out about this and attacked the base holding the Gundam. During the attack, Amuro found himself piloting the Gundam in order to save everyone at the base. And from then on out, he became the Gundam pilot. However, not long after becoming the Gundam pilot, Amuro faces off against Shar Aznable, a man of incredible skill, and this sparks quite possibly one of the greatest rivalries ever created. And that's no hyperbole, I fucking mean it. At first it's very clear that Shar is a superior warrior in all respects, but as Amuro grows as a soldier and learns to grow up as an individual, they eventually find themselves on equal footing. That's actually another really great aspect of Gundam, the characters. They all grow and become much more mature and better people throughout. At first, Amuro, he just kind of seems like this whiny kid, you know, complaining, he doesn't want to fight. However, eventually Amuro accepts the road that he's on and understands what his responsibilities are. He grows as a person, becomes more mature, and learns what his role is. Not just Amuro, everyone around him as well. Character relations don't stay the same, and people become hardened by war, and people grow attached to each other, and to then end up dying. Despite the art style appearing charming and cute, some very dark and sad events occur. You have to remember, even though you have giant robots blowing each other up, everything is still in a realistic setting. Now, some people don't agree with this because of something called a new type. What's a new type? To put it bluntly, a new type is someone who entered the next stage of human evolution. A new type is someone who has a keen sense of mental awareness, able to feel emotions of other people especially other new types, and can effectively detect hostile intentions during combat, allowing them to sense and predict enemy attacks. Now, this comes off as fantastical some people, and sometimes the imagery can give cadence to this as well. However, none of this is actually all that out there. It plays on the fact that most humans cannot access all the facets of their brain. Who's to say, for some, we cannot do some such things that new types can do after enough human evolution. Now, the development of this particular plot device is much more delved into in Gundam Zeta. This concept is merely introduced in this series. Amuro himself is a new type, and so are many other characters such as Shar. What's interesting about Shar, however, is even though he's a new type, his abilities as one are actually very unremarkable when compared to his rival Amuro. This is actually another dynamic in the rivalry between these two characters. Okay, getting off the new types, I also wanted to get into how the overall plot comes together very nicely at the end. You have the Battle of Abu Aku. The battle says a lot of things. This is the final battle between not only the Earth Federation and the Principality of Zeon, but between Amuro Rei and Shar during the earlier years. 
I'm not going to spoil anything or reveal what happens during the battle itself. However, I will say it's definitely one of the greatest battles in the Gundam franchise. What's so great about this battle is that even though everything comes together, it's not a neat and tidy bow. People are still dying. People are backstabbing each other. And it's an overall gritty but very satisfying finish to the original Mobile Suit Gundam. This also leads me to say that the fight scenes in Gundam overall are fairly consistent and enjoyable fights. Seeing Amuro fight Shar, however, is usually much more interesting than most of the other fights in the series because of how dynamic their rivalry is. However, there's still some very impressive fights that occur, such as the battle uh, between Ramble Rawl and Amuro. He's an older soldier that Amuro kind of looked up to, and to see them fight each other was a very emotional part of the story. This also ties into how the show is more complex than the average anime at the time, especially one with Mecha in it. Before finishing this part of the retrospective, I want to say that there are two ways to watch the original Mobile Suit Gundam, the original series, and the movie trilogy. The biggest differences between these two is simply that the trilogy is shorter and has a much better pacing. The original series, unfortunately, has a sporadic pacing, while the movies have a much smoother and to-the-point approach. Between the three movies and the series, the three movies do a damn good job of telling the story and keeping it interesting. Okay, sure, there's some character development here and there that's missing, but overall the movies are much cleaner and smoother experience as opposed to the series. And I highly recommend the, them over the original 43 episodes. Not only that, but it's been confirmed that the ending in the movies is canon, so you will be getting the more accurate experience if you watch the movies. Overall, this is a classic anime, and while the original series hasn't aged too well in some aspects, the movies have and still tell a great story. My only gripe with the movies is that it's used an English dub that's different from the original series. Having seen the original series, this put me off immediately, and I watched in subtitles instead. Besides that, this is a classic anime with great characters and one of the greatest rivalries that will span across the Universal Century timeline. One of my YouTube subscribers tipped me off to GameSwap located at 2294 East Dorothy Lane in Kettering, Ohio. So I went out there and I checked it out. I always make sure to check out a store before contacting them for one of these segments. I like to make sure that I had a good shopping experience before uh, dealing further with them. I managed to find a copy of Double Dragon for $4.99, which is something that's been on my radar for a while. And it was a complete copy and it's pretty decent price. This store has a very good selection of games. As you can see behind the case, they have a lot more of the uh, more highly sought after games. Which, you know, makes sense. A lot of stores do that. Also, it looks really nice having these uh, up front in the case. There's also a very decent selection of consoles that they had on display. So if you're in the market for a used console, you know, go ahead and stop by. Of all the used game stores I've been to in the Dayton area, 
this is definitely one of the largest. There's only one other store that I've been to that is equal in amount of games. But I'm going to go ahead and give this one a slight edge because the paint in that other store is so eye-murderingly bad that it's just a not a good atmosphere, you know? It feels tense, but not the case for GameSwap. The lighting is very nice, it's very relaxed in here. The employees were very friendly. When I talked to them after filming, they were very friendly and uh, very helpful. I overheard them answer a few calls, and I, w I would say my customer service experience had had been pretty nice, and from what I uh, saw there, it was, it was a good experience for everyone. As with most stores that deal with uh, used stuff that, you know, customers bring in, you do have to be 18 and have a photo ID, but one of the nice things is they only give cash. So you don't have to worry about them trying to push store credit on you, which is something that the bigger used game retailers try to do. They really try to push uh, in-store credit, which is ultimately valueless. <laughs> I was very, very impressed with the Sega selection at this place. I'm a big Sega fan, and I love going through Sega CD games and Saturn games. And of the stores I've been to in the area, this place definitely had the biggest selection of Sega games. Look at that. Dark Savior. Excellent game. I'm definitely going to have to go back and pick up some of these gems. And they were all in good condition, too. It's also a pretty nice selection of 3DO games, another type of game that you don't see, you know, out too often. Look at that, complete copy of uh, Wing Commander 3, absolutely amazing game, and they're asking $9.99. Awesome. Dynamite Heady, 9 bucks. not bad at all. Overall, I had an amazing experience as a customer and working with them for this segment. So I would highly recommend checking this out if you're in the Kettering area or up for the drive. There's definitely a lot of stuff to look through. Now one of the other things that set them apart was the music section of the store. There's actually a little room in the back and Tons of records, so if you collect a vinyl, this is a pretty cool place to come check out. There's lots of vinyl, an awesome Prince poster, which I'm also a pretty big fan of Prince. But I don't know if I'd want to tack that up on my wall. 
But yes, I was impressed with the uh, CD selection. It's not a lot of places uh, selling CDs anymore, so it's nice to have a place where you can still get physical media for your music. I also saw a couple of 8-tracks. If you collect 8-tracks, I might have something to come look through, but there's plenty of boxes of records. Now here's, here's where I was really impressed. These are Selectivision movies, or CED, Capacitance Electronic Discs. You never find these things in the wild. Check out that Spider-Man cartoon. That one's just for the bros. Trolliolio. <laughs> they also had a really big selection of Laserdisc movies, which I've probably got about 60 Laserdisc movies. I've been collecting for a while, and there's a whole bunch of movies here that I don't have in my collection yet, that I don't have on DVD or Laserdisc, that, honestly, I love Laserdisc, so I always go for those. But, I've never seen that many Selectivision movies outside of eBay listings, so that was pretty cool. They also have a really large collection of DVDs, and... You know, for the adults, big box of porn. Number four on the top ten console countdown of all time, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Originally released in Japan as the Famicom, this console eventually made it to the United States in 1985, but wasn't mass-produced nationwide until 1986. And over here on the left we have the original Nintendo, and over on the right we have the top-loading Nintendo, the Model 2, which came out towards the end of its lifespan. And was a reduced-cost model with a few less features. Like, uh, for the most part these do not have AV composite video out, they only have RF out. Now I've seen a few people on YouTube that have done AV mods to their top-loading Nintendo, but I've also heard that if you complained about the RF interference and sent it into Nintendo, they would uh, install an AV output on your system, as well as a few anecdotal stories of people that bought later model top-loading Nintendos that came stuck with composite video out. But for the most part, your top-loader Nintendo's is only going to have RF. Mine only has RF. Uh, most people refer to the original Nintendo as the toaster model, which has always irritated me. I may have mentioned this before on my podcast or in some videos on my YouTube account, but I've, I've used a toaster before. I've seen a toaster. I've had toast with my breakfast. I have toasted bread in my lifetime. And never once have I seen a toaster where you pretend this is bread in a toaster, where you put the bread in the front. I have never seen that. Have you ever seen that? No. Every toaster you've ever used, more than likely, you take your toast and you put it in the top, this way. And, yeah, so I don't get it. The original Nintendo looks like a VCR. Uh, yeah, you know, with the little flip-up thing, it goes in like you'd insert a VHS. 
That looks more like a VCR to me than a toaster. I don't know if uh, the people that coined that phrase have ever been in a kitchen, but I'm betting on no. Because every toaster I've ever seen loads like this. Unless you're talking about a toaster oven, which usually has a pull-down door. So, whatever, dude. Uh, it's one of those things that irritates me. Now, it's obvious that this was going to be on the list and in the top ten, uh, in the top fives, because this is an absolute classic. When most people think about classic gaming and retro gaming and retro collecting, most people under a certain age, I would say around 30 and under, they usually think back to the Nintendo. And it's the people that are 30 and up that think of the Ataris and televisions and uh, Vectrexes and so on and so forth. But pretty much everyone 30 and under around that age range, they think back to the Nintendo. Just like likewise, in another 10 years probably, there's going to be a bunch of uh, twerps that uh, get into retro collecting and talk about their N64s and Playstations. It's already starting to happen if you... Uh, browse message boards, you see a lot of people that have that same nostalgia factor for their N64s and PS1s. And, you know, amongst them, the real men, the real alpha males in that group, remember their Sega Saturns as their first consoles. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the design of the Nintendo, it's very different from the Famicom. And Nintendo did this on purpose. This came out immediately after the uh, video game crash and is kind of the second video game crash actually which is one of those things that I learned maybe about a year ago that there are two video game crashes but you only hear about the big one when you know E.T. was the game that broke you know that was the straw that broke the camel's back and uh, left gaming in the limbo and the <laughs> Nintendo came and made everything good again but the original Famicom looks kind of like a toy. If you've ever seen one, it, it looks like a baby's toy because you have to use your hands. Um, so Nintendo, for the North American market, designed this to look like something that would belong in your entertainment center. Something that would look nice next to a VCR that loads through the front. Something that would look uh, familiar. Something that would look high-tech and serious, like an a piece of entertainment uh, equipment, not just a baby's toy like all those, you know, Ataris and ColecoVisions. So there's a reason that this looks, you know, more like a VCR, like a piece of video equipment, so that it looks, you know, serious. It's not a bunch of goofy colors and, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, thinking about that uh, with Nintendo's current image as being the kitty system for the babies. But, uh, yeah. So, with the, the biggest reason for this being, you know, the classic that it is, is all the video game franchises that it launched. Uh, ongoing, long ongoing Nintendo staples. Uh, the Legend of Zelda. Timeless classic. The concepts that this brought to gaming and uh, brought to the mainstream gaming public's attention you start the game and you have to use the map that came with it to figure out what you're doing. Uh, you have to solve puzzles, you have to get clues by talking to people, you explore 
you knock on random walls, you try to blow everything up, you set bushes on fire, and you have to explore something that was revolutionary. Another big, huge innovation that people don't really think about is the D-pad. This, this was a <laughs> innovation. The uh, gaming pad. Now, see, I can't play games. I, I well, I can't, but I don't prefer to play games with the mouse and keyboard or with an arcade stick. If I'm playing a fighting game, I prefer this because I grew up playing, you know, games with controllers. This is just natural to me. And uh, before this, you know, if you've ever seen the original Atari's controller, or the Atari 7800's controller, the ColecoVision and television controllers, they're all awkward and just unwieldy, just monsters of horrible form and poor design. But this, it's simple elegance of up, down, left, right, A, B, start, select. I mean, that is... This was a revolution in gaming and accuracy. And with a controller like this, you could play games like Super Mario Brothers with perfect control. The levels of accuracy that you get out of this are unparalleled by other uh, input methods of the time. And the Nintendo has hundreds of games. And almost every conceivable genre that uh, you could throw at the Nintendo, from hardcore uh, dungeon-crawling RPGs, platformers, adventure games, uh, <laughs> platforming games with RPG elements, there's just so many different games, and of course, the light gun games. Everybody remembers Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt. This is the second version of the Nintendo Zapper, and listen to that beautiful click. 25 years later, still, this, this thing works great. Uh, the Nintendo has held up very well. Now, most people are looking for the top loaders because of their reliability. It's no small secret that you're going to get the blinky light, you're going to get airs because of the 72-pin connector. That's the biggest caveat of the system, is the reliability after 25 years of hard use. And it's easy to go on eBay and for five bucks and get a replacement 72-pin connector, swap out the parts, and have something reliable, which is what I recommend to everyone that has a uh, regular Nintendo. Now, I used to use my top loader when I first got it. I used it for a couple years. But once I started doing YouTube and needed to record uh, footage, it was easier to record things from the composite signal, so I started using my original Nintendo and I recommend it once you replace the connector it's it's really good to go and let's see what else there's also a whole plethora of accessories that sadly I don't have I do not have a power pad I do not have a Rob the Robot which is uh, ultimately useless unless you want to play the two or three games it supports but every retro collector I it generally starts with a Nintendo, because that's, you know, what they remember growing up with. That's what they have the nostalgia for. And there's a lot of games out there that are really cheap that are still lots of fun. And uh, just absolute timeless classics that I don't think will ever get old. Uh, you know, there's kids that, you know, five years old pick up Contra for the first time and absolutely love it. 
because the gameplay holds up. And yeah, that's that's why this is number four on the top ten console countdown. Congratulations, Death Adder 83. You are the winner of the Bowser desktop figure from the last episode of Mondo Cool TV. I've already got your contact information and we'll be sending it to you eventually? Probably sometime soon. The next gift up for grabs is this wonderful Pokeball. This is an Ultra Ball. It's soft, it's squishy. You can throw it at your little brother, you can throw it at your dog, and it probably won't hurt either of them at all. Uh, if you want to be the very best, like no one ever was, all you need to do is go to MondoCoolCast.com, go to the text entry field that says sign up for the mailing list, and that's it. Once you're a member of the mailing list, you will be automatically entered for every future prize drawing. So if you would like to get this soft Pokeball to torment your siblings or pets with, all you have to do is go to MondoCoolCast.com and sign up for the mailing list.